Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this podcast is hopefully here to make today a little bit better than yesterday, even though it's a sad one today. If you've never listened before, g'day. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. Um, I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a dad and I'm a stepdad and I'm in Sydney, uh, Australia. And on Saturday night, when I was um, making some TV at work, we were uh, in a break and everyone basically looked up from their phones at the same time because we'd all seen the news that the legendary Australian broadcaster John O'Coleman had passed away. He was someone who was an icon in my industry, hugely influential on me from even when I was a, a little kid. And he went on to be the biggest of the big here and internationally. He worked on landmark stations like the earliest incarnations of Triple J in Australia, the, the BBC in the UK, and the huge upstart that was Virgin Radio in the 90s. Jono was a, a hero of mine from even when I was a little kid. I used to watch him on afternoon TV. He was on a kids' TV show. And um, he was just a ray of light on camera. Um, years later, I mean, 2002, I know, 2005, I met him for the first time at a radio awards show and I just nerded out over him because I just couldn't believe that I'd see him in the flesh, this person whose presence on screen meant so much for a kid like me from Brisbane because I, I grew up, wanted to, I wanted to do his job. When I came back to Network 10 after 2013, I had the good fortune to work with him on a, on a fairly regular basis through his work on uh, morning TV there. And if you ever had the privilege of being in the same room as John O'Coleman, you'll know that the man was like the sun. He was just a ray of light. And he simply found a way to make every conversation that you had with him feel like he was acutely interested in what your experience of a situation was. And then, you know, he'd go, yeah, oh, man, that must be weird. That reminds me of a time I, and then he'd just hit you with a story that you would go, you're making that up. Like, oh, yeah, time I, I cooked tacos with Madonna or something. Like, he didn't do that. But, like, he'd hit you with a story that you go, you are inventing that. But, no, it would be real because you just, he, he just lived this life of just, he was, he's just an incredible guy. All his stories were true. <laughs> true. Jono adored his wife, Margot adored her and their two kids, Emily and Oscar. I'm really, really, really grateful to have known him. And I consider myself lucky to be around at a time when he was working. As, as a way of remembering him, I'll uh, take you back to when Jono came over to our old apartment in 2016 and he sat down with me as a guest on episode 155 of this show. As sad as it is, Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips was right. Everyone you know someday will die. So when they're alive, don't wait. Tell them what they mean to you. Don't wait. Enjoy this chat with John O'Coleman. How are you, John? I'm very good, thank you, Osher. Thanks for coming. How's the coffee? It's good. I'm, I can't gobble it down too fast because otherwise I'll scald my throat and uh, I'll be talking like that. Like no a, need to do that. Like the Godfather. No need to do that. Um, did, well, where are you here in Bondo Beach, which is in the eastern bit 
of Sydney, which is on the eastern bit of Australia, which is on the southern bit of the world, if you look at it. It is. A, yeah, we're kind of sitting on the edge of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did you grow up around here? I I did sort of. I, my parents um, were in Bronte Beach, which is a couple of beaches down from here. So I used to spend a lot of time in uh, Waverley Cemetery, which is you've been to. Yeah. Um, a lot of famous people buried in that cemetery. Oh, really, as well. such as? Oh well, uh, Henry Lawson, really poet. Henry Kendall, the poet. One of the first, um, I've done this because we did it at school down the road at Cloverly Public School. Um, oh, I used to be able to, oh, the guy, Lawrence Hargraves or Lawrence, Har- the guy who was on the, used to be on the on the paper money, mm. who uh, was one of the early aviators of Australia. He's buried in there. Quite a lot of people. Wow. Gigi went to Cloverly Public School. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's, um, oh, I know a lot of people that went to Cloverly. Actually... <laughs> For Australian listeners, the um, that show that they do, uh, Kitchen Cabinet, which uh, Annabelle Crabb does on the ABC, she went to see the uh, current treasurer of Australia. I can't remember his first name. Morris. Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison. And he went to Clovelly Public School because there's a photograph. They showed a photograph of him in his school photo and uh, it was with my old teacher, Mrs. Katzman, <laughs> the late Frida Katzman. Frida. So your parents, uh, what, what were they doing when you were close well, to the Well, we, um, we immigrated from England. Oh, yeah. So um, we ended up, they bought a little house in Clovelly, um, literally across the road from the school. So I used to cross the road to school in the morning. And, and that lovely road with all the trees in it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, Chesterfield Parade and Inverness Street we're in. Yeah. What's, um, uh, how old were you when you came here? Uh, seven. Wow. Yeah, on the boat. What was the conversation? On the it sounds boat. like they're dragging bodies across the yeah, roof. Yeah, upstairs. I live in an apartment building and I think making up what the noises are. There's a mass in, murderer up there and he's It's an international dragging. game. Making up what noise your upstairs neighbours are making is uh, very odd. I don't know what they're doing up there. It sounds like bodies are being dragged across from one room into the bath where they're putting them in a bath full of acid. Okay. That's just one theory. Oh, let's go with it until we find other proof. <laughs> until we hear the sirens. What was the conversation at home, do you remember, before they said we're moving to Australia? Um, oh, there was great excitement because my father, you know, it was kind of the mid-60s mm-hmm. and he was fed up with the London of the mid-60s, even though it was kind of groovy, you know, funky London. For him it wasn't really because he was working a lot. And, uh, well, economically Britain was... And it was fucked after it, yeah, Second was, World War. Rationing would have still been in, in play. Yeah, and there was lots of strikes. And, yeah. Um, so he said, right, we're going to get out and we're going to go for a better life. Let's go to the south of France, all the Bahamas, and uh, about three or four others down the list was Australia because they worked out that well, south of France was going to be hard and France was going to be hard because we weren't English. We were English speakers. And... Um, the Bahamas, they'd bought a little piece of land in the Bahamas through the Sunday Sunday Express newspaper. You could buy a tiny piece of land, which we now own in the Bahamas, which is like as big as a car parking spot, I think. No one's ever been there. But I've inherited from my late parents, my sister and I, but I've got the deed. It's, it's a square in in the Bahamas bought through the uh, Sunday newspaper. Which island? Uh, Great Exuma. Of course. So it could be a car park of a, a burger shop. It could be a, 
I don't know. I, everyone keeps saying, you've got to go. I've got it on a map and it's like this square, all these little squares and ours is coloured in yellow, I think. So, wow. Yeah. And at that stage, I can't remember how much it was, but it was, you know, a couple of hundred pounds in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And they pay, he paid off like, you know, five shillings or a pound each week. And, uh, and then that was the idea. Let's go to the Bahamas. Yeah. Even the Bahamas will start again. And uh, anyway... Long story short, they uh, applied for a ten-pound POM status, where you basically got assisted immigration to Australia in the '60s, where they were they liked, you know, they wanted lots of white um, people, white people, uh, <laughs> but also you know Italians and Greeks. So there was yeah. kind of a little bit of olive skin, yeah. Italians, Greeks, um, Germans, and Dutch, and and then we came on the boat with uh, lots of Scots and. Um, Welsh people. And Which way did you come? It was before the the for, uh, the, the Six Day War or whatever it was. So, so we through came through the Suez, Suez Canal. Canal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that okay. Pretty exciting for a yeah. seven year old. Myself and my sister and and we waved goodbye to everybody to all our relatives and yeah. Far out. Man. And it was pretty exciting because you thought, wow, I've seen Skippy on the TV. Um, and as a seven-year-old, I didn't know much more about it apart from Kookaburra sits in the old gum tree. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was very exciting for us kids. What do you remember about getting here? Do you remember about pulling into Sydney Harbour? Oh, yeah. Well, the thing was we, um, we came over on an Italian ship, the Sitmar Line, which became those terrible kind of Sitmar, the fun cruise. You know, they became those party ships. Um, but there was three of them. There was the Fair Sky, the Fair Star and the Fair Sea. And the the Seekers and the BGs and all these bands used to go backwards and forwards to England, uh, Easy Beats, and they. Uh, so we must have got when 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 Clive James and Jermaine Greer were going one way, we were coming the other way, and uh, and um, yeah, that's that. It was six weeks on the boat, but it was uh, the first place we went to was Fremantle because it was coming from that direction. Mm. And uh, we got to Fremantle. Everyone was very, very excited. It was 3 o'clock in the morning and everybody got off the boat. 3 o'clock in the morning, 1965 in Fremantle. You can imagine what it was like. I just remember a dock, like a dark dock yeah. with big spotlights and, and there was one man selling newspapers and, wow. and I was this little fat kid in a wheelchair because I broke my leg. So, On the boat? No, about a week Two weeks before we left England, I uh, we were going off to say goodbye to all the relatives, and then we were the us kids went out and played, and uh, we trespassed on somebody's land, and it was like, quick, there's a man coming, he's chasing us, you kids, and uh, but all the little wiry ones just jumped over this wall, and I was on top of the wall, and I realised there was about a seven foot drop on the other side, and I didn't land very well, so I broke my leg in two places. My tibia and fibula, those two bones oh, at the down bottom. bottom. So I had to. Ha- I was. I was in a wheelchair. Six weeks on a boat in a wheelchair. Yeah. There. So those Italian sailors on the boat. I get a lot of cheek, you know, squeezing of cheeks, and you know, bella bambini, hey. And they used to tie me to the table when the because when the ship was rocking. <laughs> <laughs> so I got very special treatment, and so hang on. So when the ship was rocking, you would it's like a was, like a comedy sketch. You would roped, roll yeah, away yeah, from the table, yeah. and then when it came back the other way, you would come very close while grabbing plates, <laughs> and <laughs> well, then go back the other way, have a couple of bites, yeah, yeah, swap out. It was very funny. 
<laughs> and I, the, the positive thing about being in a wheelchair was that I didn't have to uh, have my meals with the kids. Oh. So I was in the adults. I was having dinner in the adult part of the ship when the kids were all in another part of the ship, you know, Thing throwing noisy. food. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But I was roped into my wheelchair <laughs> and roped to the table, I think. That's I have memories of that. When did music become a, a thing that was, you know, obviously that was your thing. Yeah, when oh, no, I was always, I, even when we, before we left England, mm. you know, I used to watch, you know, um, Ready, Steady, Go and um, all those kind of 1960s music shows. Plus I used to listen to Radio Caroline and some of the pirate radio stations and we used to get Radio Luxembourg. Plus we had a record player, but my dad had inherited this record player which only played 78s. So we're talking, you know, the mid-60s mm. and my dad was kind of like, look at all these fabulous 78 records that Uncle Solly's donated or someone left us in a will. So we had like all those really heavy 78 records. So I grew up listening to mainly classical music and then music on the radio and then I found out that at night time you, uh, you could listen to the kind of European stations and uh, Radio uh, Luxembourg and things like that, which used to play, you know, the, the Beatles and... Um, some of the more kind of pop music. There's a, you don't have it now because you can, if you want, pick up your phone and listen mm. to any song ever recorded yeah. somewhere. Which is exciting anyway. It's, it is exciting anyway. Yeah. But there was that sense of discovery about late at night finding the misty frequencies. Absolutely. And you can still do that because whenever we go back to Europe, I always take a little radio with me and I just love tuning through the kind of, um, the Italian stations. So if you're in Italy, there's like a gazillion stations and they're all playing sort of edgy dance, you know, tribal music and, you know, just interesting things. So I still love that feeling of, of you know, I we used to have this thing called a pilot radio, which had the light, the light in it and, mm -hmm. and it had all the different station yeah. names from, you know, um, Germany and Berlin and wow. so it was an English radio. Yeah. So those radios now are like like a big wooden radio with the light that well, it was lit the furniture up the room. cabinet had tubes. Yeah. It was yeah. yeah. Well they're all it's all come back again really. Yeah. That whole um you know music amps with with um tubes in them yeah. valves that you well, can I know, see. we had a short we had a shortwave a radio that was capable of shortwave when yeah. we were we were kids. That's great. I mean all that still exists. I went through a whole um CB radio stage at school wow. as well. When I was in high school I was like obsessed with listening to <laughs> radio CB radio from you could cuz you cuz it was the same thing if you live near the coast you could pick up um, shortwave and people. Which from is kind of, I guess it's kind of like the internet of its day. Mm. It was an ability to communicate outside of um, set networks, outside of a telephone network or yeah. outside of a postal network. You could communicate with people unhindered. And they would send their, uh, I can't remember, QEC or QVC cards. So basically if you'd spoken to, you know, Osher Ginsberg in, uh, in Tel Aviv, he would send you a card to say, great talking to you on the, on the, on the uh, CB, on the so-and-so frequency, blah, blah, blah. I was getting your signal. So it was kind of like the radio hams who were like the kind of internet Yeah, they were geeks. very, I'm actually, we remember we had one in our street. They were hackers. They had a whole, generally they had it in the garage at the back because yeah. they just had so much equipment. They had signal amplifiers and there was always the weird bloke in your street that had this fuck off aerial yeah, on the roof. that's right. Huge aerial. Yeah, and you think, is that a petrol station aerial? Is that the ones that like a, a, a relay station? Are they Chinese or Russian spies? Yeah. Or are they just ham radio? I mean, there was a very funny um, 
old BBC comedy show with uh, Tony Hancock and it was called The Ham Radio Operator and it was Hancock's half hour. So each each week was a different uh, sitcom with uh, Sid James, Tony Hancock and they were these two guys mm. that lived together in this like quietly depressing place in the middle of London. Sid and James. James. Oh, it was fantastic. And there's one called The Ham, the, the ham Radio Operator yeah. and uh, Tony Hancock picks up this guy and he's going, Mayday, Mayday, SOS, we are sinking, we're taking on water. And he's like, he just goes into kind of this amazing flap trying, where are you, where are you? And hold on a second. And he's trying to find a pen that works and he's trying to write down the, the uh, it's very funny. Galton and Simpson, the same guys that wrote uh, Steptoe and Son and uh, um, a lot of those kind of early comedy shows. So when... Okay, so was this the the CB radio when you yeah. got, when I'm assuming you saved up and got one? I my friend at high school, uh, he was into CB radios as well. So he Citizen came, Van, yes, yeah, Citizen Van, and then there was a movie called CB Radio. Yeah. Um, it was which, a massive craze. Oh yeah, and it was giant in America because all the truck drivers had mm-hmm. them and still do to mm. a degree. Um, so it was that breaker, breaker, come on back, good buddy. It was yeah. all that stuff. That Weird was CB radio. Calls, yeah. You know, smoke uh, on my tail. There was uh, a movie called Citizens Band or CB, and uh, starred that guy John Milner, who then went on to be in uh, American Graffiti. And the guy who directed that movie, CB, um, was Jonathan Demi who then went on to do Stop Making Sense, Talking Heads and The Silence of the Lambs. And, yeah, he's a 29th of February boy. I met met him uh, in Sydney uh, during the Queen Street Fair one year and spent the day with him smoking funny cigarettes. You're a 29th of February? Mm. So you are 21? Yeah, I don't know what I am in real – I know what I am in real years – so I was born in the late 50s, very late 50s. Do you celebrate on the 28th or the 1st? 28th or the 1st or the 29th. This year, if you're listening to this in 2016, if you're in the future, it's not 2016 anymore. But, uh, yeah, this year is a leap year because of the Olympics. So every, every year there's an Olympics. It's my birthday. All and right. my daughter, Emily, she's... Oh, excuse that's Emily now. That's, uh, no, that's Frankie just being... <laughs> my daughter is 28th of February. Wow. Which is pretty weird. We uh, I was talking about this on the radio the other morning, and the internet being what it is, is that you can uh, do a reverse calculation. I think it's two hundred and fifty-four days or two hundred and forty-five mm. days from your birthday backwards is the conception date. My dad's birthday. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm no I'm no detective, John O'Coleman, Does but that- I'm going to tell. I'm going to ass- ass- just assume mm. that somewhere around there. <laughs> My father and my mother, my mum said, happy birthday, Michael. Did the special tribal dance. <laughs> when, so when you got on the CB, was that the first time you got the, the taste for the microphone? No, because I used to um, borrow my dad's little reel-to-reel tape recorder in England and, um, and also here when we got to Australia and record like tapes pretending I was a radio DJ, I'm pretty right. sure. You probably would have done that as oh, well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you use songs off the radio. Yeah. And you probably did it with cassettes. Yeah. I think I was doing it with reel-to-reel tape in those Love days because it. it was a little uh, German, might have been a Grundig mm-hmm. um, reel-to-reel tape recorder. And I think that's my first memory of having that crappy little hand mic mm. and going, coming up next, we've got so-and-so and so-and-so. But mm. first, here's Kathy Kirby or Lulu. Right. So I think that was the first time. And then by... 
as growing up as a kid, listening to the late night radio and the shortwave and trying to listen to those German stations. It was just like, it was just like the internet yeah. because there was, you know, black and white TV. And in England in those days, it was BBC or ITV. So there was only two channels and they used to finish at 10 o'clock, I guess, or I don't know, 11 o'clock. I was in bed by then. But, I, you know, to me, I, I just remember listening to the 78 records, mm. uh, which were all classical mainly, and then getting on the radio and just tuning it around and going, <laughs> just the sounds. I mean, even um, John Lennon did that kind of revolution number nine, and that's all bits of radio tuning around the dial mm. and everything as well, so... That's probably more so. I like the CB thing, though, because it was like you were talking to somebody else yeah. somewhere, you know, anywhere. When did you get your first taste of being able to do it for for reals? Uh, did you ever go? I mean, I, I think about it. My, I was always fascinated with radio. My dad had a mate who uh, is was a DJ on ABC FM, Classical yeah. FM in, right. in Adelaide. Czech bloke by the name of uh, Jaroslav Kovacicek. I remember him. Yeah. He was very hard. His business card was big. Yeah, well, he uh, yeah. went on both sides. And he was my dad's mate. And wow. uh, so we would go and visit him. And I, I remember just always being fascinated by the, the quiet rooms because, mm. you know, the radio oh, yeah, rooms, right. the radio all... studios were all very soundproofed. Yeah. And it was just always fascinating to me as a kid, being in a, a, a house full of boys. Yeah. There was just, oh, what's this? Oh, it's quiet. And <laughs> I know it is. And especially at an ABC studio because it's like a BBC studio. It's got that proper kind of dead studio oh, sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some proper engineer built it. It mm. wasn't just like some bloke with a couple of, with a staple gun and some egg cartons. Well, it was, I mean, for me, um, I played in bands. I was a keyboard player in a band. I think one of the first exciting things musically and radio was going to 2SM mm. and recording a jingle for a Coca-Cola Battle of the Sounds. They were looking for new bands to record the jingles. I remember doing that. That was in the old 2SM building in Sydney in Clarence what, Street. What year was that? God. Probably high school sometime, probably... Um, 1971 or 72, I think. So Barry wasn't the manager yet. No, no, no. It was there was before. Oh, no, it was before then. Yeah, I, it was like the Digger May School of. They had like you could go and do DJ courses to learn how to be a DJ who talked like that. And uh, coming up next, check out the weather at Bondi. So um, there was all those kind of Mike Webb and Graham Webb sort of voices and um, the good guys on Two UW and things. Right. Yeah. So um, that was that. But I think bef I also then started uh, going to things because I was working in advertising, so I was writing radio ads oh. a bit later on, writing radio ads and then doing some of the voices and then ended up working for a radio station as as the kind of copywriter. Right. And that's when I met Graham Bond, who was then doing Auntie Jack. Holy moly. So that was that kind of it – it's hard to remember because it was all sort of before Wonderworld um, – that love of radio and music and also working in record shops. Mm. I used to work in the Queen Victoria building and before that in Centrepoint in the shopping centre and there in a record shop Thursday night, Saturday morning. So As a teenager, playing in, yeah, that yeah, would have been the yeah, coolest thing ever. Great. That's why I've got so much vinyl. Right. Because they used to pay you but you could also get like a 25% staff discount off, off uh, singles and albums. So I've still got a lot of the things that I bought when I was working at Edel's. Edel's Records, which then became uh, the Melbourne Company, which I can't remember. Brashes, Parlance. Yeah, Brashes. Brashes, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, everything got swallowed up yeah. in the end. And it, that, so that was my kind of Thursday I, night, Saturday morning. I do miss the individual record stores. We had well, we had Harlequin Music, mm, which was in, in Drapilli, and that was, uh, was every record store was totally different. Yeah, and the way they looked was different. And it wasn't so homogenized like it is now. Everything's in, I guess, JB Hi-Fi is really the only record store left. Well, see, it's um, it's sort of coming back again though because I was walking around London a couple of weeks ago and uh, in Soho and then lots of areas outside of London, there's little record shops. So you can buy lots of new bands on, on vinyl and you can also get lots of uh, re-releases on vinyl. So they've got another body upstairs. There's a factory happening yeah, up yeah. there. Um, so, yeah, you can get the vinyls all back yeah. again, but they're charging a lot more for it. So yeah. working in uh, working in advertising, what do you remember about your first ex- explorations with corporate life? Oh, it was exciting because it was like being a young shit kicker, shit kicking sort of junior copywriter. Um, and I think I got retrenched, uh, made redundant after about three months in one of my first jobs because um, the agency went broke. It was just a little sort of art studio at St. Leonard's. Um, I was doing a lot of lecture setting before computers when they used to get uh, artworks needed so they'd do it on white card and the, you, some poor bastard like me would have to you know, you like it's German. Those German, it's like a plastic, mm-hmm. and you rub it, rub it, and the letters stick to the paper. So you, mm-hmm. so before sort of serious computers, you could do computer typesetting to a degree, but otherwise you use Letraset. So all those early hand bills and you know Avis rental, uh, uh, you know rate cards and stuff, all those numbers were put on a lot by hand. <laughs> and that was what you were doing. Yeah, that's that was sort of uh, one of my starting points and little cartoons. And I'd always been into cartooning and used to do student magazine cartoons and uh, did stuff for, for Thurunka magazine at New South Wales Uni. Um, was heavily uh, influenced by the moratorium anti-Vietnam campaign. And so I got a bit more kind of uh, motivated in the political scenes. Were you... Eligible for the draft? No, but it was getting close. I was about 17. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, you know, playing in a band, didn't want to go to fight in Vietnam um, and um, went to, I remember going to a Vietnam demonstration in Sydney. Uh, I've still got my moratorium badge somewhere, but it's the one where the guy burnt his, or a couple of guys burnt their, their draft cards on the steps of the Sydney Town Hall, which is actually in the Gough Whitlam Gough Whitlam documentary I saw recently and I was like going, oh, my God, that was the thing I was at. Wow. I think we took the afternoon off school and myself and Neil Clugston. Um, from high school? Yeah, from Ramwick Boys High. Ramwick Boys High. Yeah. Ramwick Boys High. And that, I was in the band. We had a sort of rock and roll band there as well. So it was the kind of cross between playing in a band, meeting girls um, and being against the Vietnam War. Yeah. What do you remember about going to the demo and being around those kind of people? There's I a got, lot at stake. Like it's very different to now. Uh, like what's at stake? My phone battery's flat. Yeah, you know, that's yeah, about no, it. There was nothing like that. That was like walking along. I got I got into trouble from a policeman because I wasn't. I left the footpath. So basically, um, I or I was on the footpath. I can't quite remember now, but I got a bit of a clip around the ear, and it was like, oh my god, I've been hit by a policeman. I've arrived. <laughs> it was like get on the bloody thing, stick it, get off the. You know, it was like I, I think I'd stepped onto the road, or yeah. I'd stepped from the road onto the footpath, and it was like one of those big old Sydney wallopers, and it was like, get back on there, you stupid dickhead. 
Yeah. It was like, and that was my, that's my main, one of my main moratorium memories and also standing there watching this guy with his draft card uh. and there was film crews all over the place and they were filming from the, uh, the sort of awnings from um, I think it was Walton's or Coles or Woolworths across the road. The, the, the Woolies are just still across the road. Mm. Um, and uh, it was very exciting and I think we got into trouble because we took sport. We took sport off to go to the moratorium or we did something. We left school early. Mm. Changed into our Levi's. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't want to be there in Randwick Boys' high uniform. No, no. I think that was that was uh, one of the paranoias, and uh, also um, and desert boots. You had to have desert boots. Didn't want to have your school shoes. I remember desert boots. Yeah, you can Boy. still get them. Did you get so? Did you get very politically active? Was that your thing? Uh, I think a lot of it was motivated around meeting girls, meeting hippie girls that didn't wear bras. That was one of my motivations, but also deeply political. <laughs> it was, it was the, it was the seventies. So there was kind of uh, the smell of marijuana was hanging on the air. We didn't quite know what it was, but a lot of the bands, a lot of the gigs, they'd have that smell. Um, and you think, well, they're all smoking herbal cigarettes. Obviously, it's good for their throat. Yeah, of course it is. And uh, yeah, so the moratorium was, you know, it was that time. And I remember going past a Bondi Junction one once in a bus coming, going home back to my parents' place and there was a big protest on at Bondi Junction just up the road from where the Bondi vet has his surgery in Ebley Street, which is where I used to go to the uh, Ebley Street Library when I was studying at school and there was a big protest outside the Bronca Lodge or whatever hotel it was up there because the South African rugby team was staying there uh, yeah. and uh, it was when they put, it was only whites playing in the South African yeah. spring, it was. The spring box. Yeah. And they were going, I just remember being in the bus and there was all these people going, paint them black and send them back, paint them black and send them back. And I'm going, wow, it's a protest. Yeah, you've got to, you got whatever you're going to yell, it's got to rhyme, otherwise it's not really. Mm. Otherwise ho, it doesn't work. ho, Ho Chi Minh, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh. Shame, phrase of shame, shame. <laughs> it's usually pretty basic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's got it's got to work. So you <laughs> when at how did you how did the television thing come? Where you got the radio gig? Where was that? Um, my first radio gig was working at Two WS. It was a brand new radio station that was starting in West Sydney, Western Sydney. It was at Blacktown, Seven Hills. So I was working then in advertising. So I'd worked in a couple of different agencies. How did you get out there? Take the train. I, I drove my car. Wow. I, I was still living at home with my mum and dad in right. Bronte, Clovelly. And this is before any of those fabulous freeways, so yeah. Parramatta oh, Road. God. Parramatta yeah. Road and uh, Victoria Road. Forever. Out to Seven Hills, Lebon's Lane. And it was when they just introduced radar cameras uh -huh. or like they'd introduced speed guns. Yeah. So I lost my licence for six months after a after a few times on at Lansvale. They always used to get me at Lansvale, suburb of Sydney for people listening in uh, Tierra del Fuego. And, uh, yeah, so that was going out to from Bronte to I think that motivated me to I had to move out of home at some stage to cut the... the, the it's two the, hours of your life go, getting there and back. I know. Well, you imagine day. it was like losing your licence for six months. Oh, so I had to get a guy who also worked at 2WS in the uh, copy department with me and luckily he lived in Bronte or in my area so I gave him my car. He used to pick me up from my mum and dad's place every morning and, and he'd drive. Fabulous. But I, I went to court and I tried to 
have it, you know, over not overturned, but you know, I pleaded with the lawyer. I had a I I, I had a lawyer, and I pleaded with the judge, and we got letters because at that stage I was doing stuff for the Wayside Chapel. I was because uh, in the band was David Knoffs, whose father was the Reverend Ted Knoffs at the Wayside Chapel. So he wrote me this letter saying, you know, what great work I do and yeah. working there free of charge and. The judge is like, no, you're the kid from the he Vietnam said, demonstration. He, he said, yeah, get on <laughs> back on the gutter. He said, I can see you do a lot of great work for charity and that's fantastic, but unfortunately for the next six months you're going to have to do it without a car. Mm. And I went, right, okay then. Did you get on air there at TWS? Yeah, because, Graham, uh, I was writing lots of ads and I was voicing a lot of them as well because it was the it was when 2WS was in the little house. It was right at the beginning of 2WS uh, and I would voice a lot of the ads and then I would do s- silly voices uh, on people's radio shows. Um, and then uh, I got, because I was friendly with Graham Bond. Was he working there? No, he was doing, he was working in it's sort of advertising. It was, I think it was after Auntie Jack. Yeah. So he was already famous. And, and we decided to do, we did a couple of demos for Double J. Yeah. Um, and it was before they started doing Triple J nude radio with Graham Bond and Rory O'Donoghue and Gary uh, Gary McDonald. And um, so we did this show called The Rex and Bruce Show. That was my first show on 2WS. It was like two, two blokes on the radio Sunday night or something like that, Rex and Bruce. And it was all set in Dubbo, supposedly. Which one were you? Uh, I think I was... I think I was Bruce and I think he was Rex. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah, all right, mate. It was a lot of that sort of uh, uh, got a live traffic report from Dubbo. The uh, set of lights is broken down. Well, it's basically stuck on orange. So it was like that kind of <laughs> Dubbo Doug. It's stuck on orange. Yeah. So there was only the one set of lights. But, yeah, that was at, um, out at Blacktown at Seven Hills, yeah. the Rex and Bruce show. And that was because Mike Webb, who was the program director, thought it would be, you know, a great idea, you know. Bit of fun, bit of comedy. It was great because it was a, a brand new radio station uh-huh. and it was hard for them to get guests because you think, well, what band is going to say, yeah, we, we, we're going to be talking on 2SM because it was back in the days when it was AM radio. FM hadn't started yet. Yeah. So you did the ABC maybe and then you did 2SM or 2UW or 2UE uh, and then they said, oh, there's this new station, 2WS. It'll it's just an hour take, away. It'll take you an hour and a half to get there. I remember the first band that ever came out. Well, the second band. John Williamson was the first person who ever came there because he had a number one with Old Man Emu. Right. Um, so he was kind of he was sort of local, western suburbs kind of boy. So that was the first famous person that came there, uh, John Williamson. And then Racy, I remember Racy. Some guys do, some guys don't. And uh, Racy, they were like this terrible kind of a bit like the Bay City Rollers. Yeah, it's very, very pop. Yeah, very, very, very pop. Racy, R A C E Y. So Double J was AM at that time. Double J, yeah, started at AM Sydney only. But, but you said you did a demo. What was it about Double J that you wanted to get on? What was exciting oh, about it? Oh, because it was kind of edgy and, yeah. and a bit, a touch of the sort of uh, uh, like pirate radio, okay. a bit like Radio Caroline and that kind of. Um, yeah. There was kind of. Because before that, uh, 702 as it's known today in Sydney, it was called 2BL. I ended up working there as well at at some stage uh, before I went off to England. Was it still ABC? Yeah, ABC, 2BL. Um, and uh, But they used to have a show with Chris Winter on 2BL and it was called Radio with Pictures. 
and he used to have a very... And he became one of the bosses of Triple J and Double J. Marius Webb and Chris Winter used to have this giant afro. And he'd go, hi, welcome to uh, Radio with Pictures. Tonight we'll be listening to the new... You know, it's like, I don't remember what it was, but there was kind of, there was always like a maybe a Beatles white album tracking from track to track and... Uh, uh, Al Stewart, Year of the Cat, <laughs> all that sort of. So that there was radio with pictures and Room to Move. He did a show called Room to Move, which was just radio. And then they introduced one, which was uh, Chris Winter on the radio, but simulcast on ABC television. That was very kind of wow. Uh, I guess they were, had the technological capacity to do it because they just run a cable from downstairs yeah. to upstairs. So it would have been AM radio, you know, but they had a good strong signal. And then um, simulcast on black and white TV, I guess it was then, I think. Would you see his face? They have a camera in the yeah, studio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. From what I remember, yeah. Wow. I'm sure it's in the archives there somewhere. How and, wild. Yeah, and GTK was a great show on the ABC oh, too. I remember seeing stuff like that from Getting Rage. to know. Yeah, GTK. Yeah, cut it up and put it on Rage. Well, I used to go to, when other kids were out playing sport and things, I would sometimes go to the ABC studios at Gore Hill where they'd have a band playing to record a live session for um, for GTK. This is getting pre- to know. Pre-countdown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pre-countdown. It was uh, GTK was on at 6.30 for 10 minutes into Bellbird, which was the first sort of soap I'd ever seen. Mm. It was set in the sort of Melbourne country or Victorian country town called Bellbird. So GTK was people like Richard, Richard Neville and just kind of arty-farty but with a music thing at the beginning and a music thing at the end and then maybe an interview with, you know, Mick Jagger who's here to shoot a movie. So a lot of those things you see on Rage, that black and white stuff. All that stuff came from there. What do you think of Australia? I think even maybe that Eagle Rock clip, uh, yeah, those you see those black and white clips or, uh, you know, just those kind of, you think, oh, my God, it's GTK. Right. Chain and... uh, Carson Chain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. They were a Bondi band. Really? Yeah. Chain was sort of, they used to play in Darlinghurst, uh, Phil oh, Manning, the guitarist. Matt Taylor, what was his the guitarist? Matt player? Taylor was the, the singer. Sing- I remember when I was young and all that. That's Chain. Oh, they used man. to play up the road in a wine bar up on Bondi Road called... Yeah. Well, that was Chain. That was a Sydney band. They used to play at French's Wine Bar in Darlinghurst, which was just wine and cider. Then there was Martin's Bar up at Darlinghurst, which had lots of recorded music but not live music. The Oxford Tavern across the road, which had live bands. Um, but, yeah, Chain. God, it sounds amazing. Renee Gay used to play around here. Sydney sounds amazing at night time then. Yeah, but it all used to finish about 11 o'clock. Oh, really? I think so. I mean, you could go to places like Checkers and Whiskey A Go-Go and they'd be open until after mid- midnight. But I think you just, there was this crazy licensing thing where you had to have, you were having a meal. You were there to have a meal uh-huh. so that you'd pay to get in for $2 or whatever and then it would be like, you're having a meal? Yeah, 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 of course. So you're allowed to drink if you're having a meal. And the meal was like, you know, a packet of crisps or, right. you know. That right. was classes. It's a couple of sausages, frankfurts yeah. with some crisps. How did the uh, how did the double jaggy show up? God, <clears throat> I remember I went up to. I was working in advertising. A lot of the people who would like Graham Bond and Morris Gleitzman, who now, now writes kids books, they were doing the Auntie Jack sort of TV show, but they were starting to do radio things as well. I think this was before Triple J had started. It was Double J. I went up to the ABC in. Um, Upper Forbes Street, near Skeggs, 
girls' school uh, and <laughs> went into the studio with Graham Bond and Roy O'Donoghue one afternoon when they were doing stuff and just would just ad-libbing material. And so that was when I got the, I said, my God, I'm here doing mucking around with guys who were TV stars. And mm. um, so that was part of my beginnings um, and also then being in advertising yeah. and writing ads. And yeah. um, so it was kind of a, a misty way in, but it was kind of through advertising and doing voices for uh-huh. radio ads and appearing on radio ads and also um, advertising. When I used to work for Schofield Sherman Baker, which was Leo Schofield, there was one stage we doing ads for um, uh, Uncle, what was it? Um, it was a fruitcake, tinned fruitcake, like Tom Piper, but it was a Big Sister. They're still out there in the supermarkets. Now, Big Sister fruitcakes and Big Sister Christmas cakes and you you kind of un, un, uh, take the cake out of the, the tin. Very big in uh, Papua New Guinea and places like that where it's like it's a fruitcake but it's in a tin. And uh, there was an ad that was, oh, never, ever on a Monday or Tuesday. It was that famous song. And then it was me at the end of the commercial dressed as a choir boy. That was the first sort of thing I did on TV. Wow. Um, And that was in an ad because I didn't get paid. And it was like, well, instead of we haven't got money for someone's, Jonathan, you can be the choir boy at the end. I'm going, really? It was like, well, I'm going to be on the TV ad for Big Sister Fruitcakes. Yeah. I remember the I remember the ad. Yeah, and it was like even on Sunday. It was me. I was the last thing in that commercial for the Big Sister Fruit. I cakes. remember the tag. Yeah. Even on Sunday. There you have it. And so, what was it? What was when you did get onto Double J? What What was it like back then? Oh, it was pretty anarchic. And uh, any of those kind of ladies that you were seeing at the demos? They, they, yeah, they, there were some of those kind of. There was one uh, Gail Austin who used to actually do her radio show Topless. Natch. She used to do, uh, and you can Google her on the uh, on the internet. And um, when they did that forty years of Triple J documentary a couple of years ago, um, Gail Austin was in it. They had the, we had this big dinner down at Bill and Tony's restaurant, where a lot of all the Triple J people used to go down there, and uh, sort of not far from Crown Street, corner of Crown Street, the original Bill and Tony's, and uh, it's now reopened again as Bill and Tony's. Uh, in the great tradition of Bill and Tony's, they had this Triple J dinner and Matt Cocker was there, the late Matt Cocker, who's only died a few months ago, um, and all the old uh, Graham Bond and Rory O'Donoghue and uh, lots of the old DJs and um, Alan McGurvin, who now is up in Queensland, does Brisbane radio, I think. Wow. Yeah, so the, the, it, was, uh, it was a great time to sort of be in radio because, A, it was not like commercial radio because it was... You know, it was an act of parliament and it was, you know, it was the Liberal Party of the time, I think, giving the kids a bit of a youth station. And then they always used to get into trouble and it was like it would be brought up in parliament. So so uh, even then they're saying, oh, the ABC is saying bad yeah. things about oh, yeah. us. Don't we pay them? Double J and then Triple J. So it's amazing when you think that Triple J not only became AM to, you know, FM, and was Sydney only. And then when it stretched around, Went national, yeah. it was part of that thing of like they're having a youth network. Yeah. So, Do you, uh, do you remember when you went from AM to FM? Uh, on, uh, I, we didn't go there. Dano and I, I met Dano at, when it was Triple J. Oh. So he was doing a show there 
uh, and then I had, had a meeting at Triple M to do a show at Triple M, Triple G Music, and uh, I was running late or something happened or I couldn't get the, the, the day that they wanted to have the meeting. They went, I'll oh, forget it. So I said, all right, I'll go and see Triple J then. And they said, can you start on Saturday night? That was when I'd already started doing Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. Uh-huh. So Triple J said, let's put this kid on from Kids TV. And I said, I can't, I can panel operate it, but I'm not really that confident because I'd been working at 2WS. But basically I was already kind of sold on being a wacky TV reporter by that stage. I said, all right, we'll put a panel, we'll put a panel operator with you yeah. who won't talk and you just do it on Saturday night, see how you like it and we'll have a listen, see what it sounds like. And that was Dano and I that first Saturday night. What do you remember about that? after about, about that? three links, I started talking to him. And I, was, he, but, and I called him Dano because his nickname was sort of Dano because he used to watch a lot of um, Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. And uh, so I just added Dano Mabuto because there was a politician or some Hawaiian prince called Dano Mabutu yeah. or Mr. Mabutu. Yeah. So I used to call him Dano Mabuto. And uh, from that night on, it was Jono and Dano, really. Wow. And he talked after about link number three because I kept asking him questions all the time. I mean, what do you think of that one? What do you think of that one, Dano? And he wouldn't say anything. No, he's just going, oh, well, I'm not really supposed to talk. I go, it's all right, I'll pay you to talk. Or, <laughs> I can't remember what the first show was like, but it was pretty It was pretty fun. Wow. It was seat of the pants stuff. Yeah. At, uh, and that was with Triple J because it was 1981. And the two of you worked together for a oh, long God, time. A long time. Yeah, D- Jono and Dano on Triple J, Saturday nights, then Sunday afternoon. Then we left and Roy and HG took over from us and we went to Triple M and sold out because it was like all these people from Triple J were going, oh, my God, let's go to Triple M. So Stuart Cranny went to Triple M. Doug Mulray went from Triple J to Triple M to do breakfast. So we were doing drive time. Mulray was doing breakfast at Triple M. So it was uh, that and then it was like, you guys should be doing a TV show. So we started doing Jono and Dunno on the radio and then we started doing um, a, a music show on Channel 9 up against Perfect Match, I think, on Channel 10 <laughs> called Wavelength. And yeah. uh, it was the first sort of show that was a lot of chroma key and they would chroma key me into clips. So I'd be in, the, you know, the, I'd be in a Weird Al Yankovic clip and go, say, oh, hi, g'day, this is, uh, you know, you're watching Wavelength around Australia on the Nine Network and... Uh, Oh, I've got to go because um, here comes Weird Al Yankovic. At least I think it is. Hey, you got anything to eat? And it's so they'd, they'd run the clip under me, but I'd be chroma keyed into it. Uh-huh. And they used to get complaints from people saying, could you not put John O'Coleman at the start of the clips because we're recording it? <laughs> <laughs> On VHS. Yeah. What was, it, what was it like working in that dynamic? Because I think I only experienced that I experienced it like very intensely and I experienced it for about eight years with mm. James. Um, and yeah. for, for the two of us, we were referred to as the in the one word. You know, when one of us showed up, you, people expected both of us would show up. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it is funny. It's great. It's great companionship in, in that regard, being in a double act. And you and James Matheson had that same sort of, you know, dynamic and chemistry, a love of music. And, you know, James is is a bit more sort of, He's a bit slower in speaking maybe. But then again, Dano was a bit like that, depending on what he'd been smoking. Um, I would never touch the stuff myself. I like the smell of it. Um, you've, 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 you've already said you've smoked it twice in this, oh, ch- in this chat. <laughs> <laughs> Edit that bit out. Um, but, you know, 
It was crazy times. I'm, no one is going to be upset at you. So I was at a Vietnam yeah, anti-draft right. rally and I think I might have smoked some pot. No one's going to say, bad, Jono. Like it was the 60s. If you didn't, it was you the were, 70s. 70s. Yeah. It was the 70s. You, 60s. I was, you were playing it wrong. I was on that boat. You were on the boat. <laughs> um, so that, why did you, you know, when the two of you worked together, and I spoke with Merrick about this as well, mm. you two worked together for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. What's it like when it starts to not work anymore? Well, we never got to the stage because we always did lots of radio, plus we were doing sort of late night with Jono and Dano on 7 and Have a Go on 7 and Saturday Morning Live on, on Channel 7. So we took over sounds. So we kind of were, we had this kind of dream run from about 1981 till about 1990. Wow. And we never really stopped working or saying, like, that's it, I've had it with you. Mm. It was me going off to England in 1990, which basically, you know, broke up the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, John and Dana. Did, what was the conversation like when you said, I'm going to go? He said, I think it's a great idea. You know, he said, mate, you might as well do it now if you're ever going to do it because we've just done two years of Saturday Morning Live on 7, so it's three hours of live TV every Saturday morning um, from 9 till midday. And that was 88 and 89. And then 1990, I got married to the long-suffering Margot. Your first wife? Yeah, my current wife, as I call her. And then we both went off. And I said, I'm going to see if I can make something of it. Because I had a British passport as well as an Australian one because I was born there. And uh, started sending out tapes to Letterman and uh, to shows in England. And, you know, I was going to do a, a segment on Letterman, which got approved, which was uh, the, the worst late night TV ads in Australia. Because it was famous time for those really tacky kind of Joyce Mayne in a, in a hot tub going, we've got bargains and Chris Marshall organs and just bizarre ads, late night ads from Australia. And they loved the idea. And then they wanted me to come over and I'd, organised to go over there and then I, I got bumped from that show and it was like, can you come back next week? I'm going, no, that's when I was doing Saturday Morning Live and it was like, yeah. uh, not really. Yeah. <laughs> so it never really happened but I met David Letterman and I, and I had a meeting with, uh, with with Barbara Gaines, the producer. And Wow. Yeah. So that it was, was like my York? dream come true. Yeah, Is yeah. That... Yeah, it was because we were working. Because he was at NBC then? Yeah. For 30 Rockefeller plant. Wow. I, was there, I, went for five, I went to, for, I was there five days in a row watching the Letterman show, meeting Paul Schaefer and the band and um, getting ready to do this segment. They said, we can't do it this week now because this is happening and that's happening and Lou Reed's coming on and blah, 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 blah. Can you do it next week? And I'm going, uh. Because <laughs> I'd been doing seg I'd been doing bits for Saturday Morning Live. So I'd done a thing with um, the Ramones and I'd done a thing with Cindy Lauper and I'd done a thing with, you know, all these people. And I was like running out of options to how long I could stay on this thing and using freelance cameramen and things. Did an interview with uh, the Bryant Gumble and Jane Pauley and Willard Scott from the Today Show. So it was when Channel 7, NBC had a share, like 15% share of, of oh. the 7 network back in the Skase days. Right, so you were able to leverage that and keep the junket rolling for, Within a, few reason. More, for a few more days. <laughs> yeah. You were trying to keep it going, but then you had to come back. Then there was that, can you make it, can we do it next week or in the next couple of weeks? I'm going, oh, God. Sorry. So, yeah, it was because then we were doing Saturday Morning Live and I think I was doing uh, a radio show as well. So I think I was doing five days a week on the radio with Dano plus Saturday Morning Live or... We'd stopped doing the radio and I was doing Saturday Morning Live and then after I'd finished the TV show at 12 o'clock, I'd go home, have a swim in my swimming pool in Annandale and then go and do 
three hours or four hours Saturday Night Live on Today FM. <laughs> uh, brought to you by <laughs> Kahlua Liqueur. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At the old building in uh, Bondi Junction? No, at the Ramada Motor Inn at Crow's Nest. Ooh. And then draw. Yeah, so I was doing the three-hour, at that stage, three-hour TV show with Dano, then going home, chilling out, getting rid of my headache from concentrating for so long, and then having a rest and then going to Today FM from 9 till midnight doing a Saturday Night Live, uh, let's take your calls. What kind of parties are you having? Yeah. Thanks to Kahlua. And then we were sending out people to Kahlua party people and oh. giving them. So it was great fun. Uh, but it was a bit of a intense Saturday. Yeah. What was uh, – so you, I love that you had the balls to, to pitch – Letterman. Oh, I was obsessed. Oh, I, you know, Dano and I used to love the Letterman show. How was, did you watch it in Australia? We, uh, we used to, when we were doing stuff at Channel 9, it used to come in Saturday Night Live was recorded by Channel 9 every Saturday. They'd never air it though. No. they just give it to the, who knew, give I, it to I people, so, give yeah, it to an inside. They record it on, I've, got, I've still got Betamax tapes of wow. Saturday Night Lives. And then when we were at 7, they had the satellite dishes at Epping. And we'd be watching Letterman in the afternoon coming in live and no one was running it. So surprise, surprise, we came up with this idea called Late Night with Jono and Dano. Amazing. Uh, we'll do a top ten. It'll be great. Oh, yeah, we did that. Top ten lists. We did stupid pet tricks. We were just blatant. Yeah. Which, when I met Letterman, uh, he said, oh, you're the guy that does my show in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, well, it's sort of a kind of a tribute homage. He's just all right. There's a guy in Germany who does my show. It was when those people started. Remember that German guy? He, he was a complete yeah. like, physical yeah, yeah. rip-off too. Chucking pencils and stuff. And Vizard com- came after us. Steve Vizard did his, you know, Tonight Live. So we were very lucky. I used to, we used to have, I have, two video machines at my house. One was a VHS machine, multi-standard, and one was a beta machine, multi-standard, that play, you know, that they used to have so on oil rigs. Both PAL and NTSC. Yeah, Arabic, NTSC, PAL, and CCAM. CCAM. Which was the one that they used to have in Italy and parts of Greece and on oil rigs. Wow. They had Arabic what? writing on them. So you've got, like that's just to imagine what you were doing at the time. I tried to get my counsel uh, at Leichhardt Council to approve me getting a satellite dish yeah. in my back garden in Annandale. And then I gave up in the end because it was going to be like $50,000. And I would have got like about three stations. I would have got, because I found out that every afternoon the American Armed Forces Network would broadcast the Johnny Carson show and then Letterman and stuff like that. So I, And you could get it and it wasn't scrambled or anything. So if I'd bought a... <laughs> If I'd bought a, a thing that got Intel sat, it had to be like a 12-foot dish or something giant. Yeah. And then you'd have to get it anchored into the ground with concrete slabs. And Wow. My, my wife, I think Margot, oh, no, we weren't married yet, but she's going, just think about this. It's going to be fifty or $60,000 to get a satellite dish, which what happens if they scramble it, what happens, you know, and you're never going to get through the council and blah, 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 blah. And that's when things were you know, weren't miniaturised and you couldn't do what we no, that's do how, Yeah, days. that's how you would watch the show. How obsessed then. I was to say, got to get a satellite dish. At what point, I mean, you clearly, is it, it's, it's extraordinary to think that those were the lengths you would go to just to get what wasn't given to you, what wasn't fed to you, that you were just not satisfied with what was coming out of the radio or on the telly Well, the it was strange because having that half a life in England, 
So coming to Australia and watching so many of the English shows that I'd sort of grown up with, so yeah. Doctor Who and Steptoe and Son until Death Is Depart and comedy shows and, and the music and the radio stations... Uh, at that stage, radio in Australia was probably better than it was in England anyway. There was much more choice. But that thing of seeing and hearing about shows like the Johnny Carson show and Letterman and all that and then thinking, wow, being lucky enough to work in radio and television, especially TV when they have these giant satellite dishes. So it was partly when Dano and I were doing stuff at Channel 9 and before that I was doing stuff for Hey Hey at Saturday at 9 because when they they when Molly was you know was out of action or I would do these kind of segments from Sydney or mm. I'd be in Melbourne doing hey hey when it was a Saturday morning show right. and then I'd see all these tapes and I go oh is that on the screen is that Saturday night live from America that's like oh yeah that's recorded because uh, uh Packers kids like to watch Saturday night live ah. uh, or they would uh, the only time it was it was like I used to get them we used to befriend people down in, in uh, switching or whatever it was called in those days uh, and they'd be getting a feed off the satellite, getting sports footage, American football, all that kind of stuff and news feeds and then in between that they would record Saturday Night Live and Johnny Carson and stuff because up at Palm Beach at the Packer residence, the, uh, the kids would watch these videotapes and then sometimes you'd be watching Saturday Night Live and it suddenly go off because they would have got a phone call from Palm Beach saying the kids want to watch American gridiron football. Can you change the, the transponder from LA onto... They had a link to their house? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that was when I suddenly went, hmm, how do you get a satellite dish? Right. <laughs> right. I thought this is, that's so cool. So you went to the UK and 16 years yeah. is is an incredible time. You went there working for, do you, did you pitch yourself or did they come and find you? I got videotapes, lots of showreels, VHSs of me doing uh, uh, Saturday Morning Live with Dano, lots of celebrity interviews, bits of Wonderworld stories, um, bits of uh, this, that and the other um, because I'd been on TV for from 1980 to 1990, so 10 years on and off, Wonderworld, you know, four, four years of Wonderworld, John and Dano shows, late night shows, you name it. Um, so I put together a compilation showreel and I was sending that off to Letterman and sending it off to uh, to MTV in, in New York and then sending stuff off to London. And then a friend of mine was in London and he said, oh, I gave this look at these people, blah, 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 blah. They're doing a new thing up against Sky and uh, they'd be up for you doing a show. I'm going, Seriously? Yeah, yeah, like a, every Friday night or it's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday night is Boy George and then Saturday night is Suggs on Saturday. So Suggs from Madness doing Saturday, Boy George doing Blue Radio on Friday night and me doing four nights a week on the music network, which was called The Power Station. I'm going, yeah. And it's like it's a six-month contract. You've got three-month trial, see how it goes. And I thought, why not? What have I got to lose? So we just rented out my house and Margo and I went off to London because I'd always been focusing on America. Yeah. Um, and then the Letterman thing almost happened and then I yeah. was making lots of contacts and met met Robin Williams, met Robin Williams' manager, met Carl Reiner and, and Seinfeld's manager and Bernie Brillstein and all those sorts of people going, oh, my God, this is going to happen sooner or later. 
Um, and uh, through Saturday Morning Live, doing all those rock and roll interviews with, with rock and roll bands in LA and New York and London. So then the London thing happened first and it was a snack for me because I, I was British born and, and could work there. So, because you, you mentioned that if to, to go to America and to get happening in America mean you would have to be sponsored give, in, give up everything you have, and yep. then just kind of cross your fingers. Yeah, give up, give up Jono and Dano, which was sort of cool. Dano was cool about it, um, and I thought I said I don't know how, it's gonna, how long it's going to last. We'll see what happens. Went to America, did that th- that stuff, and then Margot started working with a, an Australian director called Alex Proyas doing crowded house videos wow. and lots of ads and he started winning awards and and then she said, oh, Alex is, is going to be with Limelight in Los Angeles and I'm going to have to go to LA every now and again. And I'm going, okay, that's good because then I'll have an excuse to go to LA and do some more schmoozing. Um, so long story short is I used to do a bit of that as well. Mm. And then uh, one day um, I had an agent. In, in LA, like Abrams, Rubelaf and Lawrence, because I've seen you do the, the same sort of thing. But yeah. it's really hard because Americans expect you to be there all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> and you sort of go, okay, I'm just going to nip out to the shops and I'll yeah. be back soon. Um, so these days it's easier because you can have a mobile phone and yeah. an email address and you don't have to be anywhere. We're doing this yeah. looking at the Pacific Ocean. We could be on one side of it or the other yeah. side of it. I got I got uh, my hosting job. I did uh, live network primetime. I hosted TV over there. Mm. I got the job because I was in town on a Thursday and they said, can you meet with the people from uh, Shine? They need to meet with you. Uh, I said, okay. Yeah. So I went to go meet them. They told me about the show. Um, I sent. I had the contract by Friday night. Yeah. We were shooting on Tuesday. And did you have to prove that you were a unique talent? That why is this guy getting the gig when an American could? Yeah. Do oh it? yeah. Yeah. I had. But to I had that. a green card. By the, that's what oh, I had to right. do to get a green card. Oh, see, yeah. I had. I was sponsored in by proving I was asked to do this show on American right. cable satellite and cable. And no one else could do it. Yeah. You've you had it. to be a unique talent. I was doing yeah. it with an American as well, which made it easier. What? So what? You were in the you were in Australia in a pre-internet time. There was the dollar had just floated in the mid just mm. as you just started. Um, media was huge, huge, huge money. Skase yeah. owned seven, yeah. Bond owned nine. Yeah. There was you know the network we both work on now. I think it went under. Maybe no, no. I was uh, it was still going when I was around because um, but not long after before you Can left. yeah it was before Can West and everything. But yeah, yeah. that's it, right. It went under yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, what have you noticed has changed since, like when you come back, mm. what have you noticed has changed? Um, everything is still ticking over the same as it was, but everything is done more with an eye to the budget and how can we do that cheaper and how can we do that for free and will he do that appearance for nothing and it's good for he can plug whatever he wants. And so it's it's that kind of shoestring approach, which is similar to what it was, but in the 80s, People could say, well, he's going to want, he'll need a million dollars for that, or it's going to be a three year deal with uh, five million bucks and something up the back end and the front end. And, but there was always people that would, you know, want to do the deal or say, I'll do it for half a million or whatever. Um, and other things, the amount of things that you would do for free if you felt, you know, like it was a great opportunity to be on that chat show or, you know, the first chat shows I did, like the Mike Walsh show on Channel Nine or John Singleton's ill-fated chat show on Channel 10, which lasted for about 12 weeks or 13 weeks, things like that you would do for free because it's great to to be the kid off, you know, the guy off Wonderworld who's suddenly in Celebrity Squares. 
Yeah. You know, so I did that all the time. So I'd fly to Melbourne every Monday or every second Monday to be on five episodes of Celebrity Squares. Um, so it was when it came back, there was, you know, the Grundies and all those things, things had changed, but it was, it was still pretty much the same. A lot of the same people were in charge. Uh, and they'd say, mate, you're back. Where are you? Are you in bloody England or you're fucking Australia? Where, what the, make a decision. You've got to focus. I'd be going, yeah, okay, absolutely. That Your was kids t- were born overseas? That was a TV executive voice, by the that way. That was and a uh, very good one. Uh, yeah, Oscar and Emily were both born in London, so they have dual citizenship. Uh-huh. But, you know, I was always had the obsession. I wanted to be like John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. A lot of those people are dead, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I wanted to be like a dead guy but not <laughs> dead. Um, so we had fax machines. So I used to do a lot of sending off faxes of things to Barbara Gaines and to the Letterman Show and to this one and that one. And then suddenly it was like, John, Jono, they love your tape. This is the the day I'm flying out of LA. I'm going off to see Margot saying goodbye. I got my bag packed, going back to London because I'm about to lose my BBC radio show because I've been away for about three or four weeks. Um, and they said, oh, we, they, they love your tape. They want you to co-host this show. Two weeks of recording and then two weeks break and then two weeks of recording then two weeks break called Born Lucky. And you're going to be the wacky Aussie co-host with uh, Bob Gowen, who is uh, an American host. And he, he then went on to do uh, Entertainment Tonight with Mary Hart. <laughs> um, so I said, yeah, absolutely. And lost my BBC gig for, for a time being and did this thing in Los Angeles where I was, uh, we had an apartment and uh, I was doing this crazy game show shot in shopping malls throughout California two weeks in this mall or that mall and it was called Born Lucky and it was on Lifestar, Lifetime Cable, wow. on the Lifetime Cable Network on cable and satellite and it was owned by Jane Fonda and Barbara Streisand and they were the largest shareholders and they had Shop Till You Drop and uh, <laughs> they were all kind of mall shopping oriented yeah. shows but this was like a kind of trivia thing and a thing and you got to do, do something in that shop over there or in that store over there. Right. Yeah. It was like, Fuck what right. have they won, Jono? <laughs> hey. They well, want a beautiful sound. What was it like? You know, I went overseas chasing it. Yeah, and I, remember. Uh, I found it for a little bit. Yeah. And but then, as you say, you've got to wait around. You have to uh, wait around and you have to be willing to say, that's not exactly what I want to do, but this is the next little thing in this, you know, yeah. step. You know, that's what film directors have to do. That's what yeah. cinematographers have to do. They have to say, wait for the right script. It might not be this one, but yeah. that's a little stepping stone. Was that similar to what brought you back? I think so because you suddenly think now, especially because the, the kids were both born in London, I said we've got to get out of this situation because my mum was getting older in Sydney and then we used to fly her into London and and then she said no. Oh, then she decided she was going to come and live in London with us and and then it was like, I'm missing Sydney. So it was sort of that thing and the kids getting older. I said, once Oscar or, or Emily get to be 12 or 13, that's the time to go back to Australia. I don't want to be overseas when my mum dies and things like that. And I don't want Oscar and Emily to suddenly grow up saying, my best friend's here. I don't want to go to Australia. I don't want to. So it was a kind of a balancing act and... It was great because we were very lucky because I had it written into my contract that we would come back to Australia for Christmas, come back at Easter. Smart. I would do shows from here and radio stuff and so that was easy and then I was doing stuff for Good Morning Britain and GMTV and stuff from here and stuff there and uh, 
So I was very lucky, but it was funny that the original thing was I want to go to Los Angeles, I want to be David Letterman, I want to be Gordon Elliott, I want to be, you know, I'd met people like Robin Williams and people like Billy Crystal and I was just like in love with all those people, you know, and I, and I just wanted to be hanging out with it. The first time I ever went to the comedy store in L.A., Robin Williams and Billy Crystal were on and... Uh, he just he was doing Mork and Mindy, which was only starting just starting to get famous, and Billy Crystal was doing Soap as that gay character. Um, so it was kind of I stayed at the Chateau Marmont, and I was there with a guy who I met who was in the Monty Python stuff, and he he was a very bad boy, and and uh, it was the eighties. <laughs> And it was like very scary. It was not scary, but it was scary. Right. I'd just come out of kids' TV, or maybe I was still in kids' TV, yeah. and I was suddenly in, in Los Angeles, and yeah. it was the early 80s, and there was just crazy people around, and you'd go to a party and it'd be like a party for the Eagles or a party for this guy, and, you know, and I'd sort of go, my God, this is ma- madness. Do you ever think about what it was that you managed to avoid that kind of party lifestyle that had led to the demise of so many people? Um, I think fear, because at that stage people had already started dying. So, you know, you, the, the Jimi Hendrixes, the Janis Joplins, the Mama Casses, and then you kind of go, John Belushi, I think, had already died. So it was that sort of fear thing of like, oh, my God. And I was with a guy and a bunch of people and they were working with the Muppets. So they were doing the Muppet Show thing and there was a lot of people from crazy Muppet Show people. But it was fantastic, but it was like slightly scary. Right. You know, you'd suddenly be in a recording studio or you'd be at some party at an Eagles, friend of an Eagles party. Even in London I went to a party and it was like Marianne Faithful and I met this guy who was, who'd come out of prison for murdering somebody. <laughs> It was like I was having this chat with a guy. And I go, so what do you do? He goes, oh, I've only just come out of, you know, Wormwood Scrubs. And I, oh, right, right. oh well, I, unfortunately, I had a bit of a fight with a bloke and uh, it was uh, seen as murder. And, uh, and I was going, okay. It was seen as murder. <laughs> like, yeah. And there was a party which had changed locations from where we originally went to another place because the, there was police coming to the other place or something. And I was sort of going, oh, my God. And that was in London. So, wow. Yeah. Marianne Faithful. That's another story. That's yeah. another podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I've got to do a book. Before you've I got start to do it. a book. Yeah, yeah. I've you, already got the title. Yeah. It's 40 Years in the Media and Other Made-Up Stories. <laughs> and it's just going to be lots and lots of stories and the, the reader will go, I wonder if that's a real one. And is that one of the made-up ones or yeah. are they all real? Or Well, I, you famously like to tell the story, but I think it's very important people know. It's like I first met you at the ACRA Awards, the Australian Commercial Radio Awards in yeah. 2005, yeah. I think. Four or five, yeah. Five it would have been. I think you were. It was you, in Melbourne. You either just come back. Yeah. No, I hadn't. I was hadn't, on one of my flying visits. Are you on your, one of your flying visits? And I came up to your table and I wanted to come and say hello because as a kid, and I was a, I was a big kid. And you were a DJ at that stage. Yeah, I was, I was just doing Channel V. So I was doing right. music television yeah. and I was on radio doing Take 40 Australia. Yeah. And I came up to you and I said, when I was a kid, I just said, thank you. Oh, that's right, because we were working for the same company because we I was working for MCM. Because when I was a kid, you were the only person on television that looked like me because I was, I was eight and I was in Weight Watchers. Yeah. All right? I was big from a, as a little boy. I know, I was rounded as well. And... Um, I was, it was so, I was just so grateful that there was someone on TV that looked like me. Mm. And I think I even told you that night, but I'll tell you again. You did a character called Flash Flab. Ah. And, 
No word of a lie. I promise you this is true. Mm. I got a white T-shirt and I did the FF logo on the front of my T-shirt and I put the mask on and I rode my bike up and down the street. Flash flab. Being flash flab because it, I, well, all I got was bullied and my body was only something to be made fun of mm. and something I then felt ashamed of. Yeah. And then I see you on the telly and I remember you were on a bicycle. Doing it on national TV. Yeah, and I just you got to understand though, watching you do that and seeing your job, in many ways it's like, oh, that looks, I think I want to do that. Because I, I was doing that with Letterman. I was kind of putting myself into that kind right. of, I want to be David Letterman. And in some weird distorted way, you morphed into me <laughs> and I unsuccessfully didn't quite morph into David Letterman. Well, none of us did, but mm. do you feel happy with, how things are going. I'm very happy. I mean, the one thing about whether it's to do with being a Piscean and being close to the water and being sort of easy going one way or the other, I think I'm very happy and I'm still amazed that I've been successful in what I've done, but, you know, radio-wise and family-wise and and TV-wise. And I think we all have that kind of feeling. The older we get, we get a bit more kind of happy with ourselves. I mean, I got bullied uh, for being the fat kid as well, but it's kind of regressed in the back of my head more. And I think it's kind of my bit of braveness was to make make a, a, a part of my joke was me being flash flab because I forgot all about that as well. And I probably did that character maybe once or twice, maybe only once. And then people remember things like that because I used to play another character which was like my kind of yobbo cousin called Barry Coleman or something like that. It was like whenever Jono couldn't turn up, they'd go, Barry would turn up and he'd be like in a singlet and, a, yeah. you know, like one of those kind of hats, footy hat and be like, yeah, g'day. Yeah, John's not here today, uh, Barry Coleman. And uh, and I kind of learnt that from listening and watching all these people on TV like Dudley Moore, Peter Sellers, uh, Peter Eustonoff, who used their, their being bullied in a school situation for being different from the other kids because Dudley Moore had one leg shorter than the other and had one of those built-up shoes. And I never knew that about him. Um, So his comedy thing was protecting himself from being found out and ridiculed and beat up. Peter Sellers was, was... always felt like he was a mummy's boy and he couldn't, he didn't feel confident in anything unless he was doing a character. Uh, and he also had a weight problem. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's not like for, for kids who are going through bullying as teenagers and, you know, I was the kid that nobody wanted in school who, you know, when they were doing that, let's pick up teams. Okay. I uh, last every time. <laughs> Me too. Me Ginsburg. too. Oh, fuck, do we have to have him, sir? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Someone's got to take Coleman. <laughs> and it was either me or the kid with the glasses with the, with the oh, patch over his eye. <laughs> Isn't it funny? And the steel shit strapped <laughs> to his leg. There was always some kid. A caliper. Some caliper stuck on his leg. And, you know, what, what's he happened to those before kids? me. <laughs> that kid's probably the prime minister now. <laughs> So yeah, I think we all. Well, I'm glad you look. I'm I'm glad you you know you're here, and I, I wanted to do this for a long time because there's not many people who've had the career or have the career you have mm. in broadcasting. I'm going to say worldwide. There's not many people that have done what you've done for as long as you've I've done. Certainly it had consistently. A go. I mean, the thing is that the American thing was 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 small and but short lived, but. If I'd stayed there, it probably would have been more. But I just, it was like Australia was the flavour of the month. They were going, well, that's not going to last long. But it has lasted and it's been reborn and, you know, ever since Paul Hogan uh, and before. 
So I think I am constantly pinching myself. And, you know, you too, you've done stuff in America, you've done stuff here, there and everywhere. And I think the, the fact is we Australians have that chip on our shoulder. It's like, well, I can do it here. I'm going to give it a go in, in, in America or give it a go in, in the UK. Yeah. And I think that tall poppy thing, they don't understand that in, in England. They've never heard of tall poppies. So it's that thing of like you get them, you know, oh, well, they, they've got a hit record now, but I tell you what, they're never going to come up with a second one or yeah. the third one. So I think the tall poppy syndrome keeps Aussies. I, I've said this a lot to, to people overseas that, you know, the good thing about Australians and even New Zealanders is that they don't, they kind of take themselves seriously and they believe what they're doing, but they kind of, if they fail, they'll just get get up and have another go, or they, they'll take they'll take criticism. They go, well, you don't might not like it, but I'm going to keep on going. Right. So well, I think it's. it's I good. certainly hope that people listening can take something from that, just to because you backed yourself, man. You you backed yourself. You went, I'm this kid from a country in the South Pacific that no <laughs> one really knows about yet, and I think I can play on the biggest. T- team in the world, I can do it with Late Night with David Letterman. And a fax machine. I'm going to send them what I think is it. And tapes. I thought, what's an idea? And, you know, it was that thing of like the advertising background, I guess, of thinking, okay, what's Letterman going to be interested in? I'd seen millions of Letterman shows. It was like my my uh, my my open university yeah. course, and you've studied David Letterman and Johnny Carson shows. Fair enough. So I think if you're going to do something, you have to know it inside out. And I think that's my my one of my things is like I love to know about what I'm doing. You know, so I want to be that guy. I want to find out everything about him. Yeah, you know? I like it's like you got to. It's really important to know who built the road that you now walk on. It's exactly. really important yeah. because you might you can save yourself a lot of pain. And why do something again and again when you could perhaps iterate what they've done? We should do a self-help group, you and I, Osher and Jono's, Dr. Uh, Osher. For for frustrated broadcasters. Yeah, yeah. Just for frustrated people. (laughs) Rest home home for frustrated broadcasters. Frustrated young hippie girls. Did you shoot for the moon and... Landed amongst the stars. That's what they say at the radio station that I'm currently doing my free radio show on. It's hilarious. It goes, shoot for the moon, and if you fail, you'll still land on the stars. And I'd never heard that before. It was funny it's like something you, just, you see on Instagram. I know. It's, it's so like, ridiculous. Mm. Uh, John, I can't thank you enough for coming around, man. Hey, Thanks, well, buddy. Let's do it again. I appreciate it. I'm going to quickly take your photo real quick, all right? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, I want to take photographs of the oh, dog too. Let's do it. That was John O'Coleman. We will miss him. (laughs) He was a really great guy to work with. Make it your mission this week uh, to tell the people close to you what they mean to you. All we have is this moment. All we have is now. There might be no second chances. So do it today. Thanks, Jono. Thanks for everything, man. I'll see you later in the week. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.